people have to understand that exclusion is about you. You who thinks it's not about you, it really is about you. And if you think you don't exclude, you're also wrong. I'm Raj Kumar, and you're in the DevX Book Club. Maybe you're a global development nerd like me. Maybe you work at the UN or an NGO. Or maybe you're just excited to hear from some of the world's leading authors on the most important issues of the day. Either way, you're in the right place. Grab a snack, get a comfortable seat, and don't worry if you haven't read the book. You're very much welcome. Get ready for our discussion. This week's book club author is David Senge, Sierra Leone's Minister of Education. He's also the country's chief innovation officer. David Senge is known as an unconventional minister. He holds a PhD in biomechanical engineering from MIT and worked at IBM before joining the government in the West African country. In his new book, Radical Inclusion, Seven Steps to Help You Create a More Just Workplace, Home, and World, he shares his personal experience. Senge was not only instrumental in lifting Sierra Leone's decade-old ban on educating pregnant girls, but also in creating an inclusive framework that has made the country a model for education in Africa. Senge says the book is a blueprint he uses himself for identifying and addressing exclusion, and he hopes it can serve the same purpose for others. David, I recognize the backdrop. I think you must be sitting in, in the office where I visited you some months ago. Yes, I am. I am. I am at the office. So you're, you're in Freetown. I remember the scene coming to visit you. You don't mind me saying you have something like rock star status uh, in the world of global education. And so I was there with, a, with an NGO delegation <laughs> and people were really excited to meet you. And we were not the only ones. There was quite a crowd in the hallway. And uh, I got the impression that your day is one set of visitors after another. <laughs> is is that uh, is that how we're catching you right now in your office in Freetown between many meetings today? Today has been interesting because I I had a two hour meeting with the Minister of Tertiary and Higher Education, and we're just planning on the on the vision around. Um, going from basic education through to tertiary education with skills and then connecting it to the workforce and how to finance um, higher and tertiary education and skills as well, how to work with private sector. It was really good. I just dropped in because he's next door and we had this long technical conversation. And then I had some guests and meetings, and I spent about an hour and a half with my senior leadership team and the World Bank education team to speak about a new additional financing package for foundational learning. Then I left to go to a peace conversation. I guess I'm wondering, you know, you note in your book that the president himself, President Julius Bio, called you um, an unconventional minister. And I guess I wonder when you envision what you were thinking a decade ago. Did you ever imagine you would have a day like the one you just described? <laughs> I, I think, first of all, I did not imagine I'll be where I am today. I certainly thought that I'll be in public service, but I thought I'll be uh, there 10 years later. So 10 years ago, I wouldn't have imagined I was here. I probably would have thought I was in academia somewhere. I was in private sector doing something interesting with tech. Uh, being an entrepreneur, but when I thought about what ministers did, 
because I imagined that I'll be joining much later, I would not have imagined that I'll be doing the things that I'm doing and how I'm doing it. Maybe in 10 years, I'll still be playing football with students um, in, in a random village somewhere, or I'll be meeting some kids um, in class and doing some arts and crafts with them. One thing I did not imagine, because I never saw ministers do that perhaps, and it's because I don't, I did not own a suit for a very, very long time. And I don't remember wearing a suit to do my ministerial function. I've worn a suit or twice to attend the presidential function. But um, because I don't wear suits in my ministerial function, then it's easy to just hop out and be agile and drop down and meet some kids in their school or engage teachers or um, meet community members. I did not imagine that. So the unconventionality um, comes from just how I carry myself, what I wear, how I speak. I think my youthfulness, certainly the interest that I have. Yeah, you cut an unusual figure with, you know, not wearing a suit, with your dreadlocked hair, and as you say, you're much younger than than the other ministers and what people might expect from a, a politician or a political leader. I think, you know, you talk about it, this a bit in the book, but I'd love to just hear a little bit about your backstory. You know, you had this very kind of unlikely experience. You grew up during Sierra Leone Civil War, and you ended up getting an opportunity, a scholarship to go overseas and to, to study in Norway, and eventually becoming, I think, the only person from Sierra Leone, directly from Sierra Leone, to study at Harvard as an undergraduate. Maybe you could just tell us a little bit about your upbringing. What was it like for David Senge as a kid? I think um, for me, what I remember my childhood to be was one of a lot of play. Um, I think I, in the evenings in Bo, where I grew up, I play lots in the football field. Um, and, and the typical evening, um, or a school day would be, I, I walk to school, 40 minutes walk to school with my cousins and I'll get to school I walk back home with my friends from school maybe it will be longer and by the time you're home you I lived furthest than most of my friends in Bo and so we come we eat my food and it'll be time to go and play football and play some game and you come back you water gardens you have domestic responsibilities and you eat uh, perhaps and you study and that was a very that was what my weekly life was like. But once I came to secondary school, I had the freedom to manage my time a little bit more because my parents were working. Meant I could do slightly crazy things, you know, with my my really good friends. Signed up to go and do swimming classes at the national swimming pool, and my parents would not know about that because that was not what you were supposed to be doing. I think the, the, the play and the music and the exploration and the being in the society with other young people was very much part of my childhood. And all of this was happening as well when there was a war. And so we had this jarring contrast, hearing about violence, you're seeing violence, your cities are being attacked, you're not sure school is being closed. And this was also part of my reality. One of the first things I did in terms of real civic engagement, I was in secondary school and with some friends, we started what we call the Children's Forum Network and uh, from different schools. 
and we'll host radio shows. We will go and talk to former child soldiers who were our age or were slightly older. And we wanted as children to really create a space where there was a child-friendly version of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. We worked on it. And I did this throughout high school. And um, all this while, I was also doing well in school. And so I got a national scholarship after my final exams to go and study in Norway. You talked about in the book, arriving in Norway in the summer and shivering from the cold. It was your your first time uh, out of the country and, and even summer in Norway felt freezing cold to you. What, what was it like kind of growing up at that point as a young adult, being outside of the country? How did people react to you when you said, that you're West African or from Sierra Leone, and, and what what did you take away from that experience? You know, the United World College um, has uh, it's it has it's sixty years now, over sixty years, and there's a deep history of them bringing people from different countries, young people, to come and grow and learn together. It was my first time going out of Sierra Leone, and I remember actually that day when I arrived, I don't know August second or something. I and my friend said, oh, you can take off your jackets. It's very hot. And I did. And I was shivering. I think I was more, it was, I was embarrassed. It was very shocking to see the, this, this different perspective. How do you fit in? So from that minute, it was a question of how do you fit in? What you say was appropriate, wasn't appropriate. I ended up standing in the sun a lot more and avoiding any shade uh, that was there. Not that that helped. Ultimately, by the time I left, I was sleeping in the snow cave. Um, and, and this was, this is a real big transformation uh, for me two years later, but the difference, uh, interacting with people, you know, I, I, I do speak about this in the book. I really loved being different. Difference was something that I always enjoyed, um, diversity because I knew there was beauty and then you learn a lot, you experience other people's cultures foods, languages, um, and there's something magical about it for me as a, as a child growing up. And Norway was the first time in which I thought, well, being different wasn't always cool. Um, you know, you come to the, to the airport and you feel great because they paid for you. You're coming on scholarship. You did not pay anything and you're flying. It's a great experience. And coming out of the plane, you're getting pulled into a different room to declare what you don't have. And you're just this little kid who's excited to come to study, but you have to be treated differently from other people. And I, you know, I wasn't sure whether this was normal. So I, I didn't mind in the beginning, but then it happened every time. And you realize that it didn't happen to your other colleague students who did not look like you, but it was mostly the African students, the black students who were pulled to the side. And you will experience it all throughout your travels um, in Europe, in America, um, ultimately. It also gave me an opportunity to, you know, practice uh, some form of patience and empathy and compassion. Uh, but it, it was done the, the hard way. You use that as an example in the book of, you know, your own experience being excluded. And the book kind of exists on this axis of the issue of inclusivity and exclusivity and really thinking about who are we intentionally or unintentionally excluding and how do we do something more proactive around inclusion. And you have this term that you've become really widely known for, radical inclusion. It's the title of the book. 
how did you come to this idea that radical inclusion is the thing that's needed? You know, um, it's radical because you can't, it's not just regular inclusion. And I mean, regular inclusion, exclusion, you know, people like to think it's not about me. It's, it's somebody else. It's easy for us to think that we're not affected by uh, inclusion, exclusion issues. We don't see what we don't see. We don't define, if we don't define it and name it, we can't see it. But I quickly learned that even the people who are doing the best of efforts, like the president of the Republic of Sierra Leone, who had just made free quality education for every child, who had said he's investing 22% of his money on in education, and he's investing in girls and young people, who will go on stage and say, pregnant girls should not go to school. I say they should not go to school. And you pause and reflect and say, well, he's a really good guy. He has a great vision. He just implemented an amazing transformational policy in the country that focused on inclusion. And yet, he is putting a policy in place. He's re restating that we'll keep a policy in place that now not only excluded a whole set of people who he's been advocating for, young girls, but he's also further punishing them by double victimizing these girls who he's advocated for by bringing these gender forward policies and by banning rape and making rape an emergency by ensuring that we invest in these girls through a new sexual offenses act. So these two things did not sit well uh, with me. And um, it was radical because we had to change it from within. We had to start from within. We had to do things that we ordinarily wouldn't do. We had to take action. We had to, to, to break walls. We had to expand, expand the boundaries. I think it's also an element where when we think about inclusion, exclusion, we don't realize that we often have to change infrastructure. We have to change laws. We have to change uh, our mindset. We have to change buildings. We have to go back and really reimagine, restructure, and reorganize whatever it is that we have identified to be the barrier to inclusion. And to do that, you have to be radical. You know, it's not possible to drive these social change um, through the path of least resistance. It's never the best option. We have to be radical to do that. Are you interested in the intersection of business and social impact? Do you want to know how corporate sustainability, ESG, impact investing, and more can contribute to development finance? My name is Adva Saldinger. I'm a senior reporter at DevEx, and I've been reporting on these issues for nearly a decade. I'm the author of DevEx Invested, our free weekly newsletter dedicated to development finance. Every Tuesday, we explore how companies, investors, and market mechanisms are reshaping the world of development finance. Visit devx.com newsletters and join us on Tuesdays. I had the chance to see you in Sierra Leone, as I mentioned, some months ago, late last year. And on that visit, I got to meet some very young mothers, some as young as 13 years of age. And I got to hear a bit from them, their experience um, going to school while pregnant or not, um, leaving school after giving birth or going back 
And I, I wonder if you can talk a little bit to why the ban was put in place to begin with. Why was that exclusion made into law? And, and what did you learn as you, as you explored that question? 10 years ago, 10, 11 years ago, there was a deterioration in performance and the quality of education. Now we've seen that this has been happening everywhere post-COVID, that actually globally learning poverty is really high. Uh, the country then, the government then in power, decided that we need to review the educational standards. And they realized that teenage pregnancy was very high. And they thought that a way to uh, reduce teenage pregnancy was to ban pregnant girls from going to school. That's one. They also thought that, you know, morality in society was, uh, they didn't like where it was. And that bringing pregnant, that girls in pregnant will influence other girls to become more pregnant and to do things that they didn't allow. And so there was this uh, task force, independent body, that was established by the then president who had a report that came out and these were one of the recommendations of the report. And so the cabinet then had passed the conclusion for the minister to say the minister could ban these girls who were pregnant from going to school and from taking exams. Um, and they'd been implementing it. And when we came initially 2018, 19, 20, we did not move to change this. And the real line was drawn when on the day that I became Minister of Education, same day that I took the oath of office to serve, the, my president then publicly said that he would want to uphold this ban. It was clear. It was not in line with his vision anyway. And it wasn't in line with where we wanted to go. And some of the things that I knew that he cared about. And so the need to change this really stemmed from an understanding that what we wanted was free quality education for all, that we wanted to invest in human capital. And actually the way to do this was not to ban and exclude these girls from going to school. When he looked at the number, the, the, the age that the girls were getting pregnant at, most were 15 or 19, 18, 19. And at 15, 16, because there's a transition exam from junior secondary school to senior secondary school. And the period of wait was so long, it could take up to six months for them to get their results. That, you know, many just got pregnant. They got distracted. They got explored their bodies. Mistakes happened. And it was to say, this is not just about having pregnant girls come to school, but we have to invest in system change in making sure that these people's results came on time early enough. So nothing was, they weren't going to do anything silly. They didn't have to stay home longer than they need to. And when they came back to school, you supported them. We put all of these systems in place. And now it's a law in Sierra Leone. We just passed the new Education Act. Um, the president just signed it last week. It's not been even a week yet. Well, congratulations. And what, a, what a remarkable achievement. And it's incredible to know that that has finally happened. When you read the story in the book, you kind of put the reader there at that moment when you just got the job. You're sitting in the audience and listening to your president speak. And you find out that he intends to enforce a ban on pregnant girls 
and kind of what that that meant for your tenure as Minister of Education, it was kind of defined from that very first moment. And so to hear that you've gotten to this point of overturning that uh, that ban, it's a real achievement. Congratulations. Thank you. I mean, I think we 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 had the policy. So the first step was because the ban was put in place by a cabinet decision. The first step was to get cabinets to allow me to overturn it by 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 myself as minister, which I did. And in the book, that was the that was where the book, you know, the the, the this is one of the major uh, elements. But I think for me, when I look back, it's that not just did we do this, but now it's in law, and and that's a beautiful thing. Yeah, you make me think when you tell the story of the exam and the the waiting period of six months and kids are out of school and that leads to all kinds of behaviors, including getting pregnant. It sounds a lot like the issue of schools not having bathroom facilities for girls. They begin menstruating and so they don't show up to school anymore because there there isn't a bathroom, something as simple as that. And that there are these seemingly small things, but that contribute to exclusion and that ultimately contribute to the deep inequality and poverty that we see in places like Sierra Leone and, and all over the world. And I guess I'd love, you know, you, you're obviously somebody who's spent a lot of time in academia. You have a PhD, but in the sciences, I'd love to hear your take now that you've been in this role for a little while and you've seen the challenges these students, you know, live with every day. What do you think is the reason that the world is as unequal as it is globally and and within a place like Sierra Leone, that that there's so much inequality that people, that many people, some people are really at the fringes and struggling just to to survive, just to get by. What is your kind of theory of poverty? I think the first part to this question is that people think that this is not about them. Until we all realize that the conversation about inclusion exclusion can affect all of us, you can be running, you twist your ankle, and you realize that the building infrastructure is so bad for people with disabilities because now in your cast or wheelchair, you can't move or access the things that were normal for you. Um, if you're a woman, you face lots of exclusion. If you're a person of color, you face lots of exclusion, and we have these examples. And so people have to understand, first of all, that exclusion is about you. You who thinks it's not about you, it really is about you. And if you think you don't exclude, you're also wrong. Because until, if you force yourself to think that, well, what, how am I part of a system that excludes people? Who's in the room when I'm having meetings? If there are people in the room, Who's at the table? The next time you have a board meeting, check who's at the table. How diverse is that crowd? If you say it's a really diverse crowd, check who's speaking, who's comfortable to speak. When you ask at the end of a meeting, does anybody have any ideas, any questions, any comments? Who gets to put their hand up? See, if you notice that, then it becomes a question of, well... Is it because you're having this meeting on the 12th floor, your C-suite, where these people will never ordinarily come because they only come there to have a meeting? Is it, do you include other people in the room? Are you having your one-on-one leadership management meeting in your office or are you doing it down in somebody else's office where they're comfortable? Are the interns coming out and mixing? So this is also about at the workplace. 
when we're able to pause and reflect, and this is why this is really important in the book, when we are able to think about and define the exclusion, see how we are either part of the exclusion, how we are silencing the exclusion, how we are contributing towards it. Until we do that, we won't be able to solve it, right? And um, I think it really is why the world is as it is. I wonder what you think the role of development partners are in all of this. You know, I'm thinking of the World Bank and the multilateral banks and the bilateral agencies and the foundations and you know, all of these groups that you you regularly meet with, I'm sure. And I think about the context in Sierra Leone, you know, a country that when you were growing up had a decade-long civil war, then shortly afterwards was struck by Ebola. And of course, that was featured in all over the world. People kind of got that idea about Sierra Leone from what happened in the civil war and then Ebola. And then COVID came. And like many other low-income countries, you struggled through that period when business, commerce, tourism turned down. And then shortly thereafter, the war in Ukraine and the massive, you know, prices, uh, spikes of, of prices, inflation and shortages of goods and supply chain disruption and all the rest that you're still facing and dealing with there. I mean, when you think of the context of a country like Sierra Leone and what you're trying to do as Minister of Education, I wonder what you think the role is of the development partners and whether they, they understand this issue of inclusion and exclusion and whether they're standing up and responding in the way that, that you think is required. I think it's a really important question, and there are multiple elements to this. In the book, I speak about understanding why you, why us, why now. And that is not just for you as an individual, but as organizations, they need, everybody needs to understand our role in, um, in addressing these issues. I also speak about building a coalition, and um, they have a role to play in that coalition. Um, but I'll share two exact two, two stories, actually. The reason, I believe, why the president chose that day to restate, to support his ban for pregnant girls not going to school was because there were development partners in the room and there had been a lot of conversation and threats, seeming threats from these development partners that might withdraw their funding and support if government did not move on this. So I think it was really a case of well, I'll tell you that I lead this country. You don't lead this country, which is which I think is fair. Development partners did not set the agenda for countries. And when the president did that, I think it was more a statement and intent directed to the development partners. So I sat here and I, so I started by blaming them. Like, you called this. You're the one who has made this to be the case, you know. In the cabinet meeting, a lot of the opponents as well uh, brought up the parts around, well, the development partners do not dictate to us um, what we should do. And I think the development partners can actually, even though it's in their interest to remove the ban, but their position was doing counter uh, to their goal. Their position and how it was communicated was part of the reason for the resistance. And once I understood this uh, in my listening and engagement, I met with the partners and said, look, listen, we're all on the same side. I need you to not do the talking. I need you to not be the ones who are fighting for this. 
I will do it. Please take a back seat in this. This is not about you anymore. And um, and they listened and they respected that, um, which is why today we all win. You know, we're all happy. The kids win. It's not about us. The kids win. The girls won. The the children of Sierra Leone won. And I think for development partners, if we do not pause to reflect and understand our own role and see how we can support the champions of development in these countries, in these governments, to be the ones pushing the change, we actually can often work against our own interests. Well, I want to thank you, David. You know, you've not only worked so hard on such a critical issue on its own, but kind of shine a light on the broader themes in development and and how easy it is for those of us who are in this space talking about doing good things to forget that there are lots of people, including in this case, pregnant girls, but so many groups that are just left on the sidelines. And and your book really forces us to examine that that question. Thank you. I mean, I I I have learned a lot. I think when I um, uh, reflect on my time. In pub, as a minister, I've only been a minister for three and a half years. It feels like I've been here for, I don't know, a decade, 20 years in terms of the impact of what we've been able to do, the transformation. And I think that's what gives me hope. It gives me hope that um, if you have the right set of people, the right set of partners, uh, you might be able to just, you know, do the impossible stuff. You might be able to transform sectors. You might be able to, to, to transform cultures you might be able to drive impact so i'm excited about that and i'm happy i I feel very lucky to have been able to contribute in in this shape and form and with regards to the book i use it all the time i actually have a copy i have my own copy that i walk around with everywhere because there are many elements in there that i still use that i have used that i continue to use so it's uh I, in many ways, I say to people, I wrote it for myself. I wrote it so that I can use it as my own step-by-step manual for how to keep delivering. Um, and I think it is applicable to to people all around um, on the campaign trail. And I meet a minister who says, oh, I read your book. That part there, you know, this is really important. I need to apply it that way. I'm in the office and I meet somebody online who speaks about ways in which it's changing their lives. Um, and and that's wonderful. And I love that you brought your your own self to it, your personal stories, which are so compelling, and and you know really your your mindset, your attitude, which seems to be, uh, hey, we can do anything. You know, the circumstances might be tough, but but we can do anything we set our minds to doing. Yeah, uh, Eminem said something along those lines as well. <laughs> well, thank you for taking the time to talk with us today and to to be a part of the DevX Book Club. It's great to have you. Congratulations on the book. Thank you. David Senge is Sierra Leone's Minister of Education. He's also the country's chief innovation officer. He's the author of Radical Inclusion, Seven Steps to Help You Create a More Just Workplace, Home, and World. You can follow him on Twitter at DSenge. Thank you all for joining. If you like the podcast, please share with your friends and give us five stars. And we really do want to hear from you. Please leave your thoughts in the comments or send me a message on Twitter at Raj underscore DevX. To learn what we're reading next, make suggestions for future guests, or submit questions for authors, be sure to sign up for our DevX book club mailing list, which you can find in the description of the show wherever you're listening to this. 
you care about global development issues and you want the latest news, don't forget to subscribe to the DevX Newswire at the link in the comments, where you'll get the day's top global development breaking news, analysis, and opinion, as well as the date of the next book club. Until then, do good out there, and thanks for joining.